me a story. Something we've all said or heard in our lives. Stories bring us together around the campfire. Storytelling has earned its place as the most important tradition humans possess. The most important reason for this being that every story contains a lesson. Lessons to love, to forgive, to be just, and to strive for better than we have. They empower us, they lead us, they comfort us. Born in Alberta, raised in the backcountry, fishing, hunting, nature, the wild, all run thick in my blood. a Canadian boy, I had a similar dream to most other boys my age here, to make the NHL. When that dream was yanked from beneath my feet, how could I carry on? My story is full of hope, inspiration, joy, heartbreak, heartache, and resiliency. My name is Dana Lattery. I'm a fly fishing guide in southern Alberta, an ex-professional hockey player, and a storyteller at heart. Having spent the past decade guiding thousands of fly fishermen from all over the world, I've heard so many stories that paralleled mine. Stories of pain, brokenness, tragedy, from all different walks of life. The more time I spend with them, the more I realize that we all shared one common thread. Fly fishing saved our lives. Grab your favorite drink and join me on this journey as our story begins. Welcome back to another episode of Fly Fishing Saves Lives. I am your host, Dana Lattery, and I'm joined today by a good friend and fishing buddy, uh, Brian McGratton. Brian, hey. welcome. Yeah, thanks, bud. Thanks for having me. So, interesting summer. I think it was interesting for, for everybody. Yeah. But, you know, a good, good summer, too. I mean, uh, got out on the water a little bit more than I, than I think I ever have, um, which was great. I mean, it breaks up the what we have going on here. I mean, yeah, it was monotony. a good escape and... You know, it was uh, it was actually a great summer for my little guy Gabe. He's five, and uh, he did a lot of tours with me. Yeah, um, so cool. it was super super cool, and he 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 has really gotten into it. And you know, we, we caught a couple big fish, and you know, I think he just enjoys the adventure much as much as the fishing, or even more than the fishing, because yeah, that's, that's the cool. you know, I think that's what we got to do for them is. You know, because if we're going to take them out and slog them through a 10-hour day and make them especially fish the whole time, yeah, especially when you suck as much as I do and you catch <laughs> a fish once every two weeks. Two months. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I took them down. You know, I, I love going down to the Crow's Nest River. It's probably my favorite river in Alberta. Yeah. Um, you know, I probably fished that river about 30 times this year. And, you know, I got a buddy that lives down there. And and uh, me and Gabe got into camping, so he lets us camp on his land. And you know, just kind of getting Gabe uh, connected with nature. I think that's a, that's a big thing these days where, where kids, you know, they they get so distracted by other things that's going on, especially phones, iPads, all that stuff. I think, um, you know, when we can get our young ones connected to something, especially as special as nature, um, when they can connect with that at a young age, um, I think, um, 
I think it's very important. And uh, Gabe got a bit of a taste of it this summer. And uh, we did a bunch of cool stuff. So, you know, oh, looking forward awesome. to next season, doing it with them. So growing up, did, uh, how, you know, how much were you in the outdoors or how much did that play a part in your life? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in the Toronto area from Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, my background is a sports background. I grew up playing uh, lacrosse and hockey. But I also got into fishing. Fishing is a, you know, big gear fishing out, out east there, especially growing up in Lake Ontario. You know, lots of salmon, um, lots of bass. Uh, we have, I don't know how many lakes in Ontario, 200,000 or something. So, you know, I grew up uh, grew up as an outdoors kid too. Uh, even though coming from a big city, my dad was, was big into fishing too. Um, he's the one that introduced it to me as a kid. And, you know, it yeah. became an obsession of mine as a kid to, to do it. Obviously growing up and, um, you know, hockey started to kind of take over my life a little bit, right? I, you know started progressing through different ranks and playing on better teams and playing summer hockey and all that stuff. So a lot of my outdoors time got, got a little bit, uh, bit cut in half with, with training and, you know, trying to play on better teams and stuff and getting noticed by scouts and that, and then, you know, moving on and playing junior. So, but, uh, you know, it's, it's always been a part of me and, uh, you know, fortunately discovered it about 10 years ago too. So, so let, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's explore the hockey a little yeah. more. Um, you know, something we have, we have in common, uh, and interesting in, in how the story unfolds and the, you know, and relating to all things that develop with playing hockey, uh, but just kind of walk us through your journey. Um, obviously you had a lot of success with hockey and it became a big part of your life and it still is a big part of your life. So just, just kind of take us through a bit of your journey. Sure. Yeah, I'll take you. So yeah, like I said, I grew up in, in, in Ontario, um, was fortunate enough to, to get drafted to the OHL when I was 15 as an underage pick. And that that's kind of my where my career kind of, um, where it be kind of came real that I would maybe have a chance of playing pro hockey. Um, you know, as kids and, you know, even the young kids on Gabe's, everybody wants to play in the NHL. You know, you grow up in Canada and, you know, it's, it's our number one sport. It's our number one passion. I grew up in a sports family. Um, unfortunately, we've been plagued as Leaf fans and it's been a life of pain, <laughs> but... Um, yeah. You know, the Leafs were my team. I was obsessed with the Leafs. Um, and my dad always got tickets from work. So, you know, I'd go to three, four, maybe five Leaf games a year with my dad. And um, that's where kind of the passion started as a young kid. I'm like, man, I want to play in the NHL. I want to be a Toronto Maple Leaf. And, um, you know, that, that kind of came kind of real, getting drafted, playing in the OHL. Um, I was drafted in the fourth round to the LA Kings. Um and then things kind of turned for me a little bit towards the end of my junior career. I had a massive knee injury. I was just about to sign with the Kings. And um, I missed almost a year. I had a complete knee reconstruction. Came back as a 20-year-old, had a tough year. And that's when, um, you know, drugs and alcohol kind of creeped into my life. Um, kind of had a really up and down year, that 20-year-old year. I got traded three times as a 20-year-old. And... You know, I grew up in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and it's a, it's a big steel town. And, yeah. you know, most of my family had worked in the steel company. And uh, it was a big crossroads in my life where I'm like, I don't know, can't really see my hockey career going anywhere. I've had a massive injury. I've had a very average year as a 20-year-old. I've gotten traded three times, and I was really on the fence of quitting and just going to work at the steel factory. And um, I didn't. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I stuck with it. I signed with the Ottawa Senators and um, 
kind of moved up through the ranks and the minors there. But, you know, I always had this thing plaguing me and it was drugs and alcohol. And as, as a young kid, we don't, we don't know what an alcoholic is. We don't know what a drug addict is. We, you know, I just thought I was in a culture of, 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 of having fun. Um, the pro culture when I broke in was a lot different than it was now. I mean, it didn't matter if we had a four hour bus trip or a 40 minute bus trip, five, six cases of beer on the bus all the time. Yeah. You know, it was the culture I was in, um, but I, I, I got really sidetracked and, uh, you know, it, it plagued me throughout my early days in my pro career, uh, in the minors and in the NHL. Um, you know, I played my first game, my first NHL game with the Ottawa Senators against my childhood team on yeah. Hockey Night in Canada against the Toronto Maple Leafs. And if I could only have ever played that game, that would have made my entire, that would have made my dream come true. I mean, yeah. I still remember in warm-up skating around Ty Domi, Matt Sundin. These are the guys that were my heroes as a kid. Now I'm skating you. around in warm-up and I was trying not to be starstruck. Meanwhile, I might have to go punch one of these guys <laughs> yeah. out. I'm just trying not to be starstruck. Probably, in, probably not Sunday. In warm-up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He actually, I bumped into him one time. He's like, you want to go? Like, I was joking. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got to yeah. do it. Yeah. I got to get the first one under the belt here. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, and I played in Ottawa for three years. Um, and then I, and I got traded to Phoenix and this was a big crossroads in my life also. So I get traded to Phoenix. Um, Wayne Gretzky's my coach. You know, I have, uh, a massive opportunity to, to play more, to, the, to have maybe a bigger role because Ottawa, we, we were in first place teams when I played yeah. there and, uh, you know, I was an in and out of the lineup guy and, you know, I have a massive opportunity of, to, to play in Phoenix and, and have an opportunity maybe to sign up, maybe a longer term deal there rather than one year, one yeah. year, one year. And, um, you know, my drinking and drug use just kept getting worse, kept getting worse, kept getting worse. And, um, just, just to, and not to cut you out, uh, but to add to it. And for some people who are new to the Brian McGratton story, kind of define what your role was. Oh yeah. Yeah. So my, hockey. my role playing hockey, uh, um, yeah, I should have talked about that earlier. Um, you know, when I, when I played junior, cause we really don't know what type of players we are in junior. Yeah, we all think we're scoring. We all think we're, you want to be the score, you know, yeah. and, and being a, an enforcer and a fighter was never on the cards for me. Um, you know, I, I was always a bigger guy, so I'd always get chased around and I, I, I knew how to fight a little bit, but not really. Like I wasn't really a heavyweight. I wouldn't fight the heavyweights in junior, but they always chased me around. Yeah. Um, and it was a decision I had to make when I, when I, when I got an invite to Ottawa's camp, I, I'm like, I'm a bigger guy. My skill set could be an average pro skill set. Yeah. yeah, I would have played pro. I probably could have been an average pro, pro, maybe play a handful of games in the NHL. But I'm like, if I get really good at this. There's a niche. This, there's always a position for guys like this. And um, so I did. I started fighting. And um, I was brutal my first couple of years <laughs> talk, playing. Talk, like, talk about some of those. You know, I, 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 I was never a guy to turn them down. And, uh, you know, I'd fight 20, 25 times a year and lose them all. Yeah. And Wade Belak's brother, uh, played in the minors and he was big, he was bigger than Wade and he beat me three or four times. And I legit stood up in the dressing room. I'm like, boys, I'm going to fight this guy tonight again. If he beats me, I'm done with this role. Like <laughs> I'm done, man. Like he, like, I, I just, I'm, I'm losing. I, I can't win. I feel like I'm giving the other team momentum when I go out and fight someone because yeah. they just kick the shit out they, of me. They get all the energy their way. And I tied him. He didn't beat me. I didn't beat him. But I tied him and I'm like, man. There's hope. There's hope. <laughs> and um, 
My third year in the minors, um, I set the American League record with 551 penalty minutes. I think I had 44 fights and I lost two. Yeah. I just turned into a machine. I just think everything kind of click. I think, you know, after practice, guys will ask me to teach them how to fight. Yeah. And I'm like, everybody fights so different. It comes naturally to some guys and it's like, boys, go lose for two straight years <laughs> and, and you're going to learn yeah. what to do. <laughs> yeah. It becomes a necessity but, yeah. of survival. And uh, I think just losing so much and sticking with it, I created my own technique. I created my own style. Um and I, and I became a real force. I became an unbeatable force. Um, there was a kind of a crew of us that came into the NHL at the same time. Me, Derek Bugard, George Peros, Colt Norrin, we can all throw them. And I think that wave came in and the older guys like, you know, George The Rock, Donald Brashear, Ty Domi were like, whoa. Because <laughs> we came in and we were yet. fighting everyone because that's how it was in the minors. And we came yeah. up, it was, it was like war every night and you have... You know, five, six, seven heavyweights from that league that went right into the NHL, and we weren't afraid of anyone. We went and we were fighting them all. We didn't care. We didn't, there was like, there was a respect factor, but we were like going out and jabbing like a yeah. Matt Sundin. We were jabbing guys to get those guys to come and fight us. And um, I think that wave of us came in, put guys on their toes, right? And uh, we were all forces for over a decade in that league. Um, but on the on the flip side of that. So two two times you've told me about, um, things that you've conquered. So the first one was there was a turning point in junior as a 20-year-old when you were literally ready to concede yeah. and go work in the steel mill. And then the other one was you almost conceded uh, to Wade Belak's brother if he won. So there's two <laughs> crucial yeah. moments where you were about to bow out yeah. and, and you didn't. No, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, on, on the flip side of that and, and kind of the darker side of, of hockey is, you know, a lot of pain comes with that role. You know, a lot, a lot of punches, a lot of pain, sore shoulders, sore face, hands. You know, substance abuse comes with it too. Um, you know, some guys are stressed. It's a very, very stressful job. Um, and with that, I, 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 my mindset was, you know, if I'm crazy off the ice, it'll make me crazier on yeah. it. That, that's how yeah. I was. And I think most of us were like that. But it really caught up to me. It really, really caught up to me. And I was 27 years old. Laying on the floor in Phoenix after a five-day run with over an ounce of cocaine gone on the table and basically laying there ready to die. And uh, it was the only moment of clarity I've ever had in my life. Picked up the phone and, and called and asked for help. And uh, I called my mom. But, um, you know, in saying that, people like me and people that have been through alcohol and drug addiction, you know, those are the three hardest words we will ever say. I need help. Yeah. I think those are the three hardest words anybody can say. It shows vulnerability. It it, it could be we see it as a sign of weakness. Meanwhile, well, especially someone in your role who's yeah. Meanwhile, it's the biggest sign of strength anybody can show. Yeah, is when you ask for help. But coming from a role in that background where everybody thinks I'm this big heavyweight fighter yeah. and I got to put on this face and people see me in a different thing for me to come out and ask for help, it's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, th through that year, I went to treatment center for two months live in a sober living home for another month. And before I went in, I told uh, our GM and our assistant GM, who is Brad Tree Living, yeah. GM of the Flames now, who I now work for. We'll get into that later. Um, I said, I don't know if I want to play hockey when I get out. I said, I have a lot of work to do on myself. If I have the urge to play hockey when I get out, I'll give you a call. And, uh, you know, I got out of treatment, did my time, really working a program, living in a sober living home. And I called our GM, Don Maloney, 
and uh, asked him to meet me for a coffee at Starbucks. He walked into Starbucks and kind of stopped dead in his tracks and looked at me and was like, he just couldn't believe how healthy I looked. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. didn't have the bags under the eyes and pale skin and all that stuff. He just couldn't believe how healthy I looked and had a really long conversation with me. And I said, Don, I don't even care if you have to send me to the East Coast League. I want to play. I just want to finish off the year. There's, there's, there's about 15 games left in each league, NHL, American League, and yeah. in the coast at the time. And he's like, you know what? We'll, we'll get you down to San Antonio, who was the farm team at the time, on a conditioning stint. You know, we'll, we'll send you for two weeks. We'll see how your conditioning is. And, and we'll just go from there. And I went down to San Antonio, played like five games in those two weeks. And I've never felt better in my life. Yeah, and meanwhile, I had a three month break during yeah. the season. Didn't work. Like I worked out a little bit, uh, but I got my nutrition back on track. My body really responded to everything. I got everything kind of came back really quick. And, um, like that first practice walking into the rink, a rink never smelled so good in my life. The, the fresh ammonia. Amazing. Uh, like amazing. And, uh. You know, I, I did my two-week uh, kind of stint down in San Antonio, got called back up to Phoenix, and uh, I played two games. So the first game we played against San Jose, and I fought Jody Shelley, who's a very tough guy, and I did well. And I, and I ended up kind of edging him a little bit in that fight. Two nights later, Anaheim came into town, and I'm squaring off with George Peros, and about halfway through the fight, I go to throw a punch. He blocks a punch. I completely blow my shoulder out. So I got to go down to one knee in the fight. And this is kind of the bit first major setback that I had in early sobriety. Uh, I had to get a full uh, shoulder reconstruction done, two screws, new bone, all this stuff. And um, first thing I get prescribed is oxys, right? Because yeah, of the pain, yeah. right? The bone work and screws. And my mom was with me and I said, you know what? Do me a favor. Can you just go dump those down the toilet? And she because it's a massive surgery yeah, that prescribed, right, like yeah. we just think, I, and I said, I just don't feel comfortable with those in my body right now. So I basically took over the counter extra strength Tylenol and cried myself to sleep for about a month straight with the pain. But it, it was like the greatest pain I've ever felt in my life yeah, because, uh, you know, um, just to get through it. And obviously the uphill battle off that of, 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 um, rehab, yeah. I, I didn't have a contract. Uh, Calgary Flames called Daryl Sutter um, called my agent and said listen we've had players like Brian come through our, our team before I have no issue of signing a player like this we want him here so I signed with the Flames for the first time in 2009 uh, missed the first boat month of the season because I was still rehabbing my shoulder and one of my first games with the Flames um, I fought Steve McIntyre and arguably, it is probably my greatest NHL fight or greatest fight. You know, I've been in about 300 fights, and it's probably my, my greatest fight just because the amount of time I missed. Uh, basically missed the whole, I only played five games a season before. I was, I was in a treatment center, came back, and then I rehabbed the shoulder for close to eight months. And then I fought, I, I would say, arguably one of the best fighters to, to play in our game. I, I thought his, his technique was great. He could throw both. He was super, super powerful, dangerous, mean. And to come back after such a long break and fight a guy like that. And I, I don't I don't ever say there's a winner and a loser. I think that the minute you show up, you're that winning. shows yeah. balls. And it doesn't matter yeah. if you're going down to the ice or not. To me, that's a winner. If you if you show yeah. the balls just to get in there, there's no winning and losing because because it doesn't matter. Anybody on any given night can beat anybody. But if you show up consistently and you show the balls that you have, the balls to do that job, yeah. automatic respect. 
and to hang in there with a guy like Steve McIntyre and do pretty well. And it was an awesome fight. It's one of my favorite fights. And that kind of propelled me into the season because it, there's always a question, am I going to have that in me to do that job? Yeah. Am I going to have that fire because I don't have drugs and alcohol to, to fuel it or to fuel it or the escape. I always thought they fueled it and made me crazier. So the last half of my career as a sober fighter, I was, I was the best. Yeah. You know, I went on a streak in the NHL. I don't think anybody that's ever won. I didn't lose a fight for seven years. And then of course I get knocked out in the minors because (laughs) I was a cocky piece of shit. And that's what you get when you're cocky and you don't respect the other guy. You learn your lesson. The guy knocked me out. But, yeah. you know, the streak I had uh, going uh, to finish the NHL, it was like a 38 or 39 fight on beaten streak. I don't think that'll ever be touched. And I don't think anybody has ever done it in that league. But I don't ever really, um, you know, talk about stuff like that. But it was, it's, a, it's a major feat for me just because of the fact I didn't... I always thought uh, the crazy side of me, that crazy party, drug and alcohol fueled side of me would make me a crazier person on the ice. Meanwhile, like my last half of my career was a sober fighter. I was more relaxed. I was calm. And I think I was way more dangerous than that, like that, but your full full control. Yeah. But it was, uh, it was an interesting role. Uh, it helped me live a dream, um, play in the top 1% in the world for close to a decade met some really amazing people. Um, and it helped actually get me into fly fishing. Um, like I said, um, big outdoors as a kid, loved it, kind of got away from it, just traveling, playing hockey, didn't have a lot of time for it. My summers were consumed by lacrosse, winters hockey. Uh, and then I just didn't have time for it growing up in my teens and stuff. And then, um, so just, just before we jump into that part of it, because being in playing in Calgary was a big part of that. Let's. I don't think we've or you've stressed uh, the addiction and what it had on you, and you know, understanding what it takes to play at a, at a high level mm-hmm. of hockey, and the the mental capacity that a day in and day out grind of playing professional hockey is to to have somebody be stone drunk, high on drugs during games, during practice, like just kind of. Yeah. Go back and just yeah. talk about that because I don't think people quite understand. Yeah. And there's a lot of us that struggle with that, especially going through it. Like, um, yeah, we get to the NHL and it's all glory and whatever, but you know, there's, it's a very, very, like there's 800 guys in the, in the entire world that play in that league. Mm-hmm. Every day could be your last day, especially a guy like me. I was always a bottom of the lineup guy. Yeah. Um, sometimes on two way contracts, which is, it's uneasy because so you don't know every, just, every day can just be the last day. A two way contract means, uh, you're still able to go down to the American league. You're contracted there and the NHL. So if the team sends you down, they're paying an American league contract, they take you off their salary. So it's easier to send down a two way guy than yeah. if a and one. Sometimes the, the salaries fluctuate from 50 grand yeah, to, to 900. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the difference, right? So For, they're saving cap space. Yeah. So, and so there's, there's all these things that people don't get about the hockey game that play into this mental role yeah. and your position, or let's just say the bottom three lines yeah. on any hockey team are so interchangeable. It's crazy. So like, you know, there's, there's, there's tons of scenarios, but you'll be a bot. Like I was always a bottom of the lo- lineup guy. So it's, it's always super stressful because it's like, I have my family here. I have a house here. I can get sent down. I can get traded. I can get whatever. Yeah. And you know, some of the parts that suck with that is there'll be two or three week stretches where I can't get in the lineup. I can't get in the lineup. I can't get in the lineup. 
somebody gets hurt and then they call some up from the minors to play ahead of me. So there's like, yeah, there's just, you know, how you got to keep your, the mind stuff, the, the, you know, the, the, like I said, the day-to-day stress and, um, you know, that's the, the part I really don't miss of the game. I think that's the part that really, um, killed it for me at the end. Um, but I made a decision towards the end of my career. I went and played in England for a year and, um, you know, being 35 years old, I didn't have any offers over here to play in the minors or the NHL. And a team kept calling me from England, uh, the Nottingham Panthers. I just said to my wife, I'm like, do you just want to go and do it? Like, yeah, just go over there. <laughs> I'll probably you. only play one more year, maybe two tops. Uh, my wife's dad is from the Liverpool area, grew up, he's from there, immigrated to Canada. So she had all her cousins over there who I haven't met. And we went and played in the UK for a year and it was amazing. I felt like a kid again. It brought that little kid back in me. Uh, played in a, in a European cup tournament. So we were traveling in and out of Europe all year, made some really amazing friends in the UK guys. I still talk to, you know, two or three times a week to this day. Um, and after that season, just because of the joy it brought out in me, the way the season finished, I, I just said, this is a good time to call it. I want to leave on that note instead of the sour note. And guys I've played with throughout my career, have always said that if you ever have the chance to go to Europe, doesn't matter what kind of league it is, yeah. go do it. Yeah. Just for the life experience, you know, the team I played for, it was super cool. Um, we probably 90% full. Our rank held about just under 7,000. So we'd have 5,500, 6,000 fans a game. They love fighting. They're crazy animals over there. So I ended up going over there, fought seven or eight times. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It was good. It was a lot of fun. Um, rewind back a little bit on how I got into fly fishing. Uh playing for the flames so i had two stints with the flames i played here in 2009-10 and in my team in my time in between playing for the flames i played for the nashville predators uh and mike fisher who is a close friend of mine huge outdoors guy you guys can follow him on if there's any hunting guys in here he's big into hunting he got his uh, he's got his brand catching deers like so he's he's a big outdoors guy i played with fish in in uh in junior in Ottawa and in Nashville. So we, we've known each other, but when I got traded to Nashville it was close to close to a 20 year relationship. I've known yeah. fish and, uh, it was over the course of the lockout in 2012, 13 and fish had a buddy, his buddy, Donnie, who was a striped bass guide. So we were going striped bass fishing like two or three times a week. Cause there was nothing to do. There was no hawking and, and it just brought this little kid back yeah. in this outdoors kid. Right. And, uh, um, we fished a ton that year. Then I get traded back to the flames and, uh, I'm like, Calgary's like a huge fly fishing area. And I'm like, I would really love to try that. And Rob Kerr, who used to work for, he used to be, yeah. um, the, the sports net, yeah. um, color guy had a hunting hat on at the rink. And I'm like, well, he's got a hunting hat on. He's got no uh, guide somebody or somebody here, who can take yeah. me out. So I pulled him aside. I'm like, Hey, uh, do you know anybody that fly fishes or a guide or an outfit? Like anybody, I don't really know anything. Can you just put me in touch with somebody? He's like, actually I do. One of my friends, Dan, uh, Dan Thompson can take, can take you out. He's, you know, it's kind of in the beginning of October, mid October. He's like, he's a big hunter. So he's probably in and out and traveling around the, the province hunting. But if he has some time, he'll take you out. And Dan took me out. I couldn't cast to the oar, but it was amazing i'm like man i could like really and get into this did you you were floating the bow we floated the bow so i think we did mac to jensen's 
I didn't even come close to catching anything. I could yeah. barely cast. And, um, but it was just like so cool learning it. Dan was just showing me different tricks. Being on, I've never been on a drift boat before. Just doing a, that's, and I really like that southern section. It's yeah, one of my favorite yeah. sections, actually. And just seeing the picturesque of the river, I'm like, man, I could really get into this. this awesome. So we went out that time. Obviously, then the cold weather came. Hockey really picked up. I'm like, Dan, give me your number because I want to hit you up in the spring. I'd like to kind of get into this a little more. Maybe you can take me out and teach me. And then, then the next spring hit and it was like I was going once a week, then twice a week, then three times a week. Then I got my first stonefly hatch in July and it was mental. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> this, this is, is awesome. amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then the 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 passion kind of picked up from there. Um, you know, most of my friends I have now in town, I fish with them all. Yeah. And um, it's been such a neat um, culture to get into. Um, uh, it's been, it's a big passion. It's a huge part of my recovery. It has filled a massive void for me uh, because us in recovery, when we're always looking for something to fill the time that drugs and alcohol took, whether what it is. And it's one the of the main, of it, yeah, know, one of the main things I, when I speak at treatment centers and I speak around the province is got to find a passion and a hobby. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Try all different things to find out because what, you, what, what you. can you yeah. can discover something. And with fly fishing, it's 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 amazing for me because when I go by myself and I and I go by myself a lot is you know I can drive down to the crow's nest, I can drive down to the mountains, I can even come up here and fish all the little the creeks, and it's it's a it's a big meditation healing thing for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I put put my earbuds in. I put on some some awesome music, and I just kind of disappear into my own little world. And I, and catching a fish is about a hundredth on the list for me during that <laughs> Such day, a right? Bonus, yeah. And uh, you know, it's a big, big healing, uh, big, big part of my recovery. And obviously, when I go with my friends, because my friends that I fish with are super cool and awesome, and uh, it's it's been a massive part of my recovery. Like I can't cast worth a shit. I can't. I can barely catch fish, but I am like massively hooked. Um, it's a, it's awesome. I like I follow tons of stuff on Instagram. Um, you know, just looking at different trips and having like different ideas dreams and plans and, and dreams. It's like, man, like my biggest dream would, yeah. would be to go like fish GTs down on the Cook Islands or yeah. go tarpon fishing down in Florida. Right. So I have like all these dreams and stuff that I want to yeah. do, but you know, it's been, it's been a massive part of my recovery. It's a huge part of my recovery. Now it's like a real cool teaching thing to get my little guy into it, to have that void for him as an escape for him growing up as a young kid and get connected to something right away. And I think the most, uh, one of the most special things we can connect to is nature. It's been I, awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's, it's been a, awesome. It's an, it's an interesting thing. Um, the reason starting the podcast is spending a lot of time on boats with clients who have gone through similar esque type stories you know, not so much the pro hockey, but their life, wherever it was, and things that have happened, and then they turn to the dark side with drugs and alcohol and how they get into or back into fly fishing, and it's literally, it's freed them. It's given them hope. It's given them a purpose. And I know some people might be listening and be like, how does how does fishing actually do this? And I almost don't know the answer. And yeah. it's this, this searching of it is, is why is it so... Uh, magnetizing and why is it giving you so you 11 years sobriety is 12 12 just hit 12 yeah just hit 12 and and saying that i don't mean to cut you off so usually when i do go by myself and, and i love doing it because i over the last year year and a half i really got into meditating 
Um, and, uh, usually throughout that day, like if I go and I love doing it in the mountains just because of the sounds are a lot different than, than other places is I'll put my pack down and I'll, and I'll lay down, I'll find a real cool like river bend and I'll put my pack down and lay on my, lay on my pack for half an hour, 45 and just close my eyes and listen to the sounds just around me. It it's amazing, man. I do it every time I go by myself. I actually took a couple real cool pictures on the castle this year. I was like, I don't know how I didn't die, but I was like scaling up and down like these crazy <laughs> like escarpment yeah. cliffs and stuff. Yeah. But I actually found like a pretty high because I'm like, I'd love to go up there and lay down. Yeah. So I was like, just, like Spider-Man yeah. trying to climb this kind of rock face. But I did get up there and meditate. It was amazing. There might be yeah. a touch of clumsiness. No, oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, just a I yard see, sale. Yeah. I think I saved your life a few times. <laughs> hey, if you didn't grab me on the old man, I know. oh, man, I would still have a concussion. That was a, that was a close call. Loose rock. And yeah. Dana grabbed me like legit by like my... Oh my pack like yeah. the the pack You're not going down today <laughs> yeah but um yeah it's 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 pretty special when when you can find something when you can find especially fishing fly fishing to to it, it legit has has it's filled a massive void in my life i feel like it when i'm a, when i'm doing it it makes me feel alive when i'm yeah. doing it and um you know, I'll go through stretches where I won't catch a fish for like two weeks and I'll go every day and then you catch like a monster brown and you're like, wow, it's all worth it, everything. baby. <laughs> do, you, do you ever, I've asked a couple other guys this, but like, you know, and I have my opinions of this, but like sometimes in competing and playing at high levels in hockey, uh, there's, there's a burnout of competing. And oh, I, and I, yeah. and I, I wonder if in the fishing aspect is we actually don't ever win. And so you become uh, subdued to this unwinnable challenge and you're okay with it. Yeah. And, and, and it's actually okay to be okay with it. And it's like, I'm going to go back there. I don't have to win today. There's no uh, come home with, you know, 20 fish. I got my limits. It's just catch a release or catch nothing or just be out there. Yeah, or the just rocks. be out there with a buddy. And it's like, man, we didn't catch anything today, but that was an yeah. amazing day. Yeah. And the, and the cool thing about fly fishing is, you know, I, I made, you know, I made a couple good friends down in Montana and a couple great guys up here. It seems like every different person you fish with, you can always learn something a little bit totally. different. Yeah. You know, they might tie their bugs a little bit different. They might use different bugs whatever whatever the thing is yeah. you know they have different styles doing learning. this and you're like man maybe i'll try that next time then you'll go down to montana and they fish a different way then like maybe i'll come back up here and the old pogo yeah then you <laughs> you fish with lee down in montana and he has like a quadruple worm rig with a gigantic five pound <laughs> weight a tennis shot. ball for a <laughs> yeah. tennis ball indicator. for an indicator and you just got a lob shot it up there <laughs> 18 feet deep <laughs> Yeah, the best dry fly place arguably in the world, and Lee just hammers the worms with a drop shot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he gets down there. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 intriguing, and I think some people miss out on that because they they're arrogant and they have egos and they don't learn from everybody. I mean, I get I get a fish with a lot of people every year, and I think it's valuable for me to learn from these clients. It's like, I'm not better than you. I'm just able to do yeah. this for a job. And, and so teach me, teach yeah, me your way. And saying that on the, that competitive part, is, it's amazing because I can finally go to something I love and I don't have to be better than the guy I'm with. Yeah. I don't have to be, you know, I don't have to, to, to have that stress of trying to be the best every single day. It's something that brings me so much peace and joy. The people that I've met through um, fly fishing are, are some pretty special people. And I have a lot of those special people, fortunately, in my life right now. 
uh, that I've met through fishing yeah. and that have a big part in my life and a big part of my recovery. So that's why I'm so grateful that I was able to find something like this. And I said it before where it's a big part, um, that I really hammer down when I do go to talk to treatment centers on, we got to, you have to find something to fill the void of the time. And when you find something as special as something I found, it's going to make oh, yeah. a world of it's difference so in your recovery. Right. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about, um, your, your role now with the Calgary Flames. Yeah. It's kind of a unique thing that was set up. And I think that that's something that more teams need to take part in or ask questions about how they can involve somebody like you in that role. Um, and before you talk about it, I think it goes back to the statement that you said the toughest thing for somebody to do is say, I need help. Yeah. Uh, probably because there's a lot of judgment. There's mm -hmm. there's a, a culture in sports where it's like, be a man, be tough, testosterone. Yeah. And uh, I think walking into this role for you is you became somebody that was an open door to the players. Uh, so just kind of yeah. touch on that. Yeah, role. I'll, I'll touch on that a lot, actually, because, um, you know, the role I have now with the Flames is it's it, it's a unique role. I'm going into my fourth season. Obviously, it's four seasons. Of, uh, it's almost, almost a little more. bit different, hopefully starting soon. Um, but it's a role. It, it's a player assistance role. So I kind of work under the player development umbrella, which has been pretty awesome. Um, but it's a, it was a role created by Brad. Um, we have a long standing relationship. As I said before, he was the assistant GM when I went through my off ice troubles in Phoenix. Um, and then the GM here when I, when I played my last year in the flames organization, um, he is more of a, a really good friend than a boss. Uh, we have a, a, a great relationship and I kept in touch with Brad over the course of the last two years of my career. And, uh, when I retired from playing in England, um, the team, um, called me and asked me if I can put together a presentation to present to their rookie camp on uh, my story and off ice and all that stuff. So I, I put a presentation together and um, for their rookie camp, which is usually in the beginning of July. And uh, kind of mid-August, uh, Brad and Brian Burke called me and said, we'd like you to come in. Uh, we'd like to have a meeting with you. I'm like, okay, perfect. I was like, you know, it's mid-August. Maybe they're going to want me to put something together for training camp, which yeah. would be awesome. I would yeah. love to do it, right? And uh, they offer they, they created a position for me as a player assistance role where it's a role where it, it, it's a, it's a multi-layered role where, you know, I'm around the big team almost every day. Uh, I travel to our minor league team once a month. And in my time in between, I travel to see our prospects and draft picks. And it's more or less to create an environment where there is a guy here that's been through the ringer. I've lived on both sides of the fence in my career, and it's an outlet for players to have if they want to talk about anything to kind of break the ice of having someone there to in a support role, a guy that's been there, a guy a guy that can help you before things get really bad, before what happened to me. Yeah. Because um, in my career, every day I wanted to ask for help. I was so afraid of losing my job because there was two people I could talk to, the head coach and the GM. Well, those are the last two people on the yeah, planet. I want to go and say, yeah. I have an, I have an alcohol and drug problem. Right. Yeah. And where we were, where you're, we're so afraid of losing our job where, you know, because before it would be instant, this guy's a problem. He's a plague. Get him off our yeah, team. Gone, <laughs> gone ship, ship get him out. him out of here. Yeah. That's the way it used to be. And we were always so afraid of saying that. Meanwhile, the eight, nine, 10 hours I'm at home away from the rink, I'm killing myself every day. 
like I'm drinking myself to death. I'm doing drugs, and it's like you know, there's so many players in our game that that That's that that like that, and there's some unfortunate that aren't with us right now because of that. And um, the culture's really changed. The culture's really changed here in the last three or four years, and it, and it's still it still needs more change, but it's coming. Yeah. And um, you know, you get guys like Robin Lehner who accepts a massive NHL award who credits his his struggles with mental health to help him where he is. Yeah. You know, we have multiple players every year that come out. Nate Thompson's another one, very outspoken player about his off-ice struggles. He's been clean for a long time. Rich Clune, I mean, Jordan Tutu, a massive, massive mm-hmm. face in our First Nations community. He's done a hell of a job. Like, so guys are... Every year we got more guys coming out, more guys coming out, sharing their story because we're, we're normal people too. Just because we're really good at, at, at a professional sport doesn't yeah. mean we're invincible. Yeah. You know, we, we, we come from bad families. We come from abuse. We come from, we come from trauma. We come from a drug and alcohol background. We're, we're, we're just, we're just like everybody else. Just because we're, we play a sport doesn't make us immune. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and there's, and there's also the, you might not come from this, but when you get there and you're and I, I just I just don't think people understand the pressure. The pressure is and the pressure is the a easiest lot. thing to do is go on Facebook and rip yeah. on uh oh Brian McGrath didn't back check today or whatever and yeah. it's like Well Brian McGrath and you know, his you know, first of all he can't back check worth a shit, but you know, Brian <laughs> McGrath, you know, he he could have he could have a lot of family trouble at to- home right totally. now. Totally. You know, there could be there a lot people, of outside yeah. things around him right now that you know, hockey, even though he's in the NHL, hockey's not on his radar right yeah. now because of everything that's going on in his life. And people don't understand that, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, you know, he can just pick a guy, whatever. Sean Monaghan hasn't scored in a month. Yeah. Well, we don't, you don't know what's going on in Sean yeah. Monaghan's life right now. I'll yeah. just use him as an example. Right? Yeah. You, we, you don't know. Yeah the day-to-day struggle he's having coming to the rink right now because of what's going on on the outside. And he's trying to, and he's trying to keep it together. He's coming to the rink. He's working hard. He's being a good teammate. He's doing all the right things, but there's outside things right now that are affecting his game. And, and it happens through players throughout our league, but. And through that pressure, a lot of guys turn to, to drugs and alcohol because because it's our escape. It's our escape. Yeah. You know, my, my, you know, I don't have to deal with my life right now, so I can. This is my escape because I can really disappear into my own world. But then that, then that just snowballs, right? Yeah. Um, but what the Flames have done and what we've created here with this organization is, when guys are struggling now, there's someone to talk to, and it's uh, it's a thing that hasn't come overnight. To be honest, yeah. um, it's take it took a couple years. Trust factor is a big thing, man. Um, when the players can trust you, when they have full faith in you things can can turn and it took me it took me it took me you know a year and a half year to get to get the trust yeah which is fine <laughs> and, and it's and it's which as, is you know um there's a new group all the time new it's, group and um, it's always evolving but uh you know they they got a pretty special thing going with the flames um the environment coming to the rink we've we've created an environment where the rink is a safe haven coaches doors open gm's doors open yeah you have family troubles, you're struggling with mental health, you're struggling with, with the drugs and alcohol, how can we help you? How yeah. can we help you be the best person you can be? Hockey player can take a break right now. How can we help yeah. you being the best person you can be? Because if you're the best person you can be and your life is the best it can be away from the rink, your the better you're going to perform when you put that jersey on when you come. Yeah. And Brad is, you know, 
Brad is, is big on the person first, hockey player second, and it shows with the environment that we've created for our players to come to the rink, knowing that that place is a safe haven for you. Whatever yeah. your background is, whatever you're struggling with, we got people to help you. It's such and a, no, such whatever a time you need away from the game to yeah. get yourself where you need to be, that stall and that jersey will be waiting for you when you're ready to come back. And I think it's showed by the play in some of our players. You can see how they're loose coming to you the rink. You can just feel the culture. You can like, feel yeah. the culture. Um, and, you know, hopefully we're a leading force in the game for, for other teams to copy us. Yeah, they, they got it. I know uh, Colton Orr, um, when we were in Providence, we were line mates. And, you know, just getting to spend time with a guy that that was their daily grind of, like, sitting on the bench who am I going to fight? How yeah. am I going to fight? And you can just look over at how us. About, our knuckles are bleeding. How about our you eyes are black. And, and you let us have a shift today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, but that's yeah. how I was too because my line mates would be like, Big Earn, can you just not fight this shift? Because we need, I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm fighting him. Yeah. Don't you, yeah. you don't worry about your ice time. I'm fighting him next shift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, and that was the same with Orzi. And you just, and you know, it, in my role in hockey was if you had to fight, you fought. Uh, but it was never that was the role. And I sat there all the time and I was like, man, even even knowing like, hey, we're going to go up to Manchester tonight and I got to fight this guy. And it sat with you the whole time. And I'm like, man, if that's your job every single night, how do you... I couldn't, you know, an 82-game yeah, season? It's not, crazy, man. It's, I'll, it, I'll worry about hitting guys and playing within the game. Like but your like, whole preparation is not playing. No. My whole preparation when I'm fighting a big guy, um, and it was a big, it's a, it's a massive, it was a big learning thing for me. And I think it's really prepped me for the rest of my life because it's like, you know, just say I was fighting George LaRock. Before I fought George LaRock or Donald Brashear or Eric Cairns or Ty Domi, by the time I fought him, I already fought him a thousand times in my head oh, yeah. from the night before, right? Yeah. So, you know, I learned, uh, as I got more into the role and started getting better at it and stuff, um, you know, we, we learn different things on how to prepare. Uh, but unfortunately, guys, there's guys that that are terrified doing that role. But if they don't do that role, they don't have a career. They don't yeah, have whatever, more, right? More so terrified looking um, like they failed. Yeah, and it's like sometimes I knew I had a guy in warm-up. You know, the eyes don't lie. Yeah, The eyes do not lie. I see a guy in warm-up and... I see him looking down every two, 20 or 30 seconds to see where I am. I'm like, you're fucked. I, got I already you. got you, bud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, anybody that has ever done that role, you know, loads, massive respect. Um, you know, as, as a guy that um, kind of made it to the top and, and um, you know, I never liked to toot my own horn, but became one of the best yeah. in, in my era. I never really showed up to the rink like that. Um, I never really, I've always tried to be as a humble fighter as I could because I know how hard it is. Yeah. I know how hard it is when you've been on a 10 day road trip and you're flying all over the country and I got to go fight a guy that's 6'6", 260 pounds at two o'clock and I've slept five hours because of travel. I, I know how hard it is. I know, you know, the, you can get really hurt. You can get embarrassed in front of 20,000 people, a couple million watching on TV. Yeah. I know, I know the stress and how, and how hard it is. And anybody that's ever done that role, I have the utmost respect for them. Like it's the, the biggest respect I could ever have anybody just because I know how hard that role is. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And the, the, uh, the yin and the yang of it is that's a, that's a, you know, aggressive entity 
And then fly fishing is a hundred percent the opposite. So peaceful, man. It's, it's so peaceful. The more aggressive you are, the the, the, word, the worse it is. <laughs> well, especially especially me, like, you know, I got the two split shots on, I got five worms on. You know, if you're aggressive with that cast, good luck, go home. <laughs> but uh, you know what it's it's good. And like you said, then I think that's a word I really missed um on this is is how peaceful it is. Yeah. Um any kind of stress throughout the day if I you know, throughout the winter, even though the winter fishing sucks, I still love still to get, get out, out just yeah. because I get out and I'm out for the afternoon and the sounds of the river and, and all that stuff and standing in cold water and falling down ice banks and can't get over the ice and I rip my waders <laughs> in half and all that stuff. It's amazing. I love doing that stuff. But um, that was a day. <laughs> yeah. So me and Dana fished last year and uh, in the winter time and the, and the snow and the snow banks get pretty big on the bow and like well, they're they deep, get epically but, big and but they're underneath deep and they're hollow they're hollow and they got deep crevices and i fell in one last year yeah, and yeah. dana and brandon could not <laughs> even help me because they were laughing so hard i was scrambling <laughs> yeah. all over the ice my one leg is down about 10 feet <laughs> just as you get and up. i get up and i put my arm down to god to, and then my arm goes down like right to my neck and i'm stuck and these guys are rolling in the snow laughing at me so that to me is why that is why i fish like that to me is like some of the best days i have had fishing we have not even come close to catching a fish but the laughs we've <laughs> yeah. had you know we all you know you go and you pound some good tunes on the boat you know the laughs all that stuff you get home and you're not going to think about the 12 inch rainbow you caught it's like the laughs like, you've had yeah. all day right so yeah some of my greatest days fishing there hasn't even been a fish on the radar. Right? Yeah, the, so. or the the day last <laughs> last year is the end of October. It's like oh, 100, 150 mile an hour oh wind, and Brandon God. brought a two weight. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So we we go fish in the mountains last year, and it was right near the end of like it was right near October. Oh, it was, like, it was like October 30th or yeah. 29th, a couple of days before the end. And uh, the wind is like hurricane strength oh, wild, sometimes, and we're trying to cast in between <laughs> gusts, go, right? Yeah. And then the sun got really bright and I go to cast. I'm like, boys, where is it? I don't see it. And they're like, Big Earn is about 20 feet behind <laughs> you. Not, you didn't even cast in front of you. No. It's like the wind took it and it landed behind. I'm like, like, I think I lost it in the glare, boys. Is it up kind of in that seam up there? They're like, we're like bro, it's 20 feet behind yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, but then, and then, I mean, like that day we just, we laid in those rocks and had a nap and got oh, out of the way. That's and a funny picture. Like, yeah. That's a really funny yeah, picture. I know. It's like, like we, we can't keep, we can't actually cast and we're just going to have to, we, but I, I would go do that all over again, uh, because of what it was and the memories and just like the legit, we were like in, like we could barely fish the last couple yeah. hours because we were laughing so hard like we were in tears yeah, cramping right and the cramps and when you got stuck in the ice like <laughs> yeah. when you came down and walked 17 years upstream on us <laughs> we had to come find you yeah. the snow is up to your waist because brando's like where are you i'm like, like i'm at the llama that. farm you're like there's he's like, where? No way. I'm like, bro, I'm at the Llama Farm. He's yeah. like, and then you guys beat. And you're like, oh, he is at the Llama is, Farm. He, that is him out in the middle of the river. <laughs> yeah. And then from then on, it's cold and you're laughing and the cramp. I just remember the stomach cramp. Oh. We couldn't even help you if we tried. No, and I'm like one leg and it was opposite. So it was like a, uh, my right leg is down almost 10 feet in a crevice. And my right arm, my left arm is up to my neck. Yeah. 
and I couldn't move. And these guys are rolling in the snow laughing. Like, yeah. But, you know, that, that's I what mean, makes that's, it for us, yeah, right? That's, and I think that's a, a common thread is, is like, and you can have those memories elsewhere. I, I've never had them elsewhere quite like I have uh, going out fly fishing. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of it. Like, you're... I mean, your story's unique, uh, but I think a lot of people can relate. And the idea is it's, it's not that um, somebody has a more powerful story because they play in the NHL. It's it's the drugs and alcohol take you over. No, it's just... whether, whether, whether you have a job that you consider to be just a normal job or you're a professional athlete, um, addiction is, is, is real. It's scary. Addiction, mental health, and, you know, uh, the more people that come out and share their story. And it doesn't matter if you're a professional athlete, if you're Whatever. the more people that come out and share their story, share their experiences, share what helped them kind of rediscover themselves, find their soul, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and the ones like us that, that fish, I mean, I think we have all found something that's very special. The interesting thing about the fly fishing is it's, uh, it's not a one-time fix. It's a lifetime of it continually. It doesn't, have a moment that fly fishing was like, hey, you fly fish today, you're good. It's that constant daily rinse of like, I need to go fishing again. I need to go. And I know yeah. I feel it. It's like, you know, things build up. You're you're just like, I, I have to go. It's minus three. I got to go. I got to go yeah, stand in the river. Yeah, it's I like, need, I'm falling apart here. It's like my biggest interest and hobby too. Like I'm always looking at stuff. I'm like looking at different lines, different leaders, different bugs, different stuff from, you know, different countries, what yeah. they use over there. Like, you know, if I'm, I'm very fortunate to travel a lot for my job. And the first place I always go when I go to these cities to see our players, fly, fly shop. shops, every single city. Yeah. And I, I go in there. I like talking to the people in there. I'll buy different bugs. Like I'll go down to Arizona. I'll go down to a fly shop there. I'll go look through their terrestrial system yeah. and see what see. Oh, maybe that'll work up here. So I'm always grabbing different stuff there. I'm looking at different rods, reels, you know, talking to different people. I've made a lot of friends on social yeah. media that are, you know, some guys are, are destination guys, and it's been pretty cool, man. Like just the kind of the people I've met through the sport and. Um, yeah, like you said, it's like you're always evolving in it. You're always, always learning. Yeah. Um, you know, over the the course of this year, I'd like really like to get that that uh, trout spay down. So I got a trout spay. My buddy Lee down in Montana got, grabbed one and brought me up one last year, the year before, and and, and it's been kind of cool um, learning to do that. So like, there's always the different technique. things you can learn. Um, it's always learning, always learning, always evolving, learning different stuff, different rivers. Um, you know, you can go on camping trips and all like, there's just so, just many so things much things you, it, yeah. you can do with it. Right. And you know, you guys all have boats and it's like, well, you know what? We're not going to fish today. Hey, Janine and the kids, you want to jump yeah, in the drift float. boat? We can go for a six hour float. It's a beautiful day. Like there's yeah. just so many things you yeah. can do that this sport g gives you. Yeah. The other thing is, is there's actually no way to reach the top. No, because there is you don't no, have to reach. There's the top, no NHL right? of fly fishing. No, it's, there's don't have to reach. You're, the top, right? you're as good as you as you tell yourself and as you think you are, and but like you had touched on earlier, it's, you're not competing against. Like live the fish, the fish who I can't figure out half the time, and they will be the it's ones amazing. to decide. Well, it's amazing. We will have 
thousands and thousands of dollars of gear trying to fool something that has the brain yeah. the size of a popcorn kernel. <laughs> yeah. Right. With two eyes out the side of its head. <laughs> right. Or you'll throw by streamer, 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 dry, dry, dry. Red oh, hook. you know what? I'll go to Canadian Tire and buy these red hooks and I'll catch 20 of them. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent hours at the Vice yeah. tying up these immaculate. I got these new feathers in. I got this new this. Yeah. At the end of the day... We throw on three red hooks. And it's and just bang, it, bang, 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 day works. made, go home. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're coming to the Bow River, bring your red hooks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or like... It's amazing. Like two years ago when we're... I actually have the worm tattooed on my arm, so I'm big into tattoos. I'm, you know... Tattoo. A lot of my tattoos tell my, my life story, so... The story's got to slow down a little bit because I'm running out of space, but... Um, the worm... So I, I wanted to get a couple of years ago. I, one of my best friends in, in Ottawa does most mostly all my tattoos, and I'm like, I love fly fishing so much. I'm like, I have to get something to to represent that because it's such a big part of my life. But I'm like, I'm gonna fly. get the fly that is arguably my favorite, but everybody hates. Yeah, and no I got the red wire worm because that old fly. I don't care. That old, that flies outfished every fly oh, ten yeah. to one. I think yeah. you could take that to the fly anywhere. You want to bring that anywhere around the world, that thing will get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> so I got this big, on the inside of my wrist, that we call it the dirty worm. I got the big San Juan worm on my wrist. And Did you get the sex organ on it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and then you get a whole bunch of inside jokes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So... Anything else to add here? No, no. Just, uh, you know, anybody that's listening here that... You know, if you're going through your stuff and you're struggling, just know that there's there's always people around you that love you. And we all, whatever we think, um, when we show that vulnerability to ask for help, it is never a sign of weakness. It is the greatest strength, the greatest show of strength anybody can show. And we always think that if I ask for help, these people are going to think this of me and they're going to judge this that's how I thought but it's amazing the feedback and the warmth and the love that is shown from those close to you when you say those words the amount of people giving you their hand to help you it'll blow your mind away so those people that are listening that are struggling knowing that the people are there to help you people do love you um, and hopefully that'll make those three words a little bit easier to say Awesome. Well, Brian, again, uh, thanks for giving of your time and being vulnerable here today and helping to share your story. Hopefully other people can sit here and relate. And maybe uh, we've given, you know, through the telling of your story, somebody permission uh, to reach out and, and ask for the help that they know that they need. And if you're tuning in for the first time, um, this podcast is all about telling stories and if you have a story no matter how big or how small if fly fishing was a big part of your story then please reach out to me and i would love to sit here and share your story with everybody um, until next time i appreciate you guys tuning in and listening and i uh, hope you guys have an awesome day love you guys